my enthusiasm over our trip to Israel, but before we get into the text, I do want to mention something to you that, uh, well, that might be a help to you. Um, there is a ministry called Living Hope, and it provides resources for men and women struggling with same-gender attraction. It's a very healthy ministry, theologically sound, very, very helpful. It's been in existence for some time, but we have the good fortune of now having a Houston branch. Uh, uh, Less than a year ago, it was established by a fellow named Pastor Chris Ward, and uh, so it's in our area. And um, you may have a family member or know somebody, or you yourself may be struggling with same gender issues. It, um, this, this happens in, in churches, and you may feel desperately alone. Uh, well, uh, we know of a safe place for you, and we would love to resource you, and I'll tell you how I found out about it. I was subbing in another Bible study class some months ago, and a young man, before I taught, was asked to give his testimony um, in this class. Every week, a different person gives a testimony. So he stood up and shared about his struggle in this particular area, and that he, he was fully involved in the gay lifestyle at one point, and um, through this ministry and others, the Lord really helped him to be in an entirely different direction now. In fact, I just got back from Israel with him, he and his dad, and they were just marvelous, marvelous team members. Anyway, there's a banquet, fundraising banquet, coming up on November the 4th, and it's at a church in Friendswood, which used to be called Friendswood Community Church. You might know of it. It's now called The Harbor. And they're hosting this banquet, and uh, it is to raise funds for this really good ministry. And during that night, this fellow Garrett, who's a member of our church, will share his testimony, as will others. Uh, Really good, really good ministry. And uh, Uh, Again, for those of us in the ministry, we're oftentimes looking for uh, resources in this particular area. Well, thank God this is a good one. I'm going to let our counseling center know about it, but I want you to know about it. So if you're interested in attending this banquet, again, um, because you're struggling in this area or know somebody who is, uh, I'm going to leave information right there on this fancy chair And one will give you information on the banquet, one sheet, and the other is a brochure. I just printed these out real fast so they're not too pretty. But anyway, this will give you an idea of of living hope and and what they do. And if you're interested in coming to the banquet, you can register online or by text. And the cost is $40 per person or $300 for a table of eight. And it's not till November 4th, so you have time to think about this. You obviously do not have to be a Sagemont person to attend. If you know anybody out there who um, is struggling in this particular area, we have found a really good, really good source of, uh, of, of help. People struggling with the gay lifestyle almost always are uh, seeking to meet very legitimate human needs, but in an illegitimate way. And in that sense, it makes them no different than those who commit heterosexual sin. Isn't that correct? Oftentimes, we're trying to meet legitimate God-given needs for intimacy and closeness, uh, but in the wrong way. Almost everybody, not everybody, but almost everybody struggling in this area is dealing with an emotional deficit, usually due to family of origin issues, an unhealthy dynamic with a dad or a mom. I'm not blaming anyone. I'm just saying there's an explanation. Some of us make the error of thinking these people are way out there. No, they're not. There are brothers and sisters and sons and daughters and everybody else, and they've made some Choices to meet, again, valid human needs, and the choices are outside the will of God. So uh, there's good, good help uh, 
uh, here now in our area to help folks uh, legitimately find ways to meet their unmet emotional needs and still walk closely with the Lord Jesus. I, I wish you could meet Garrett, um, and, but if you come to the banquet, you will. Godly man walking very closely with the Lord, but who has lived the gay lifestyle for a number of years. And it was wonderful for he and his dad to be on this trip together. They got off to a really hor- horrific start when Garrett was a youngster. And by God's grace, there's been marvelous reconciliation. And dad and Garrett came on this trip, and they were just tremendous contributors. Um, it's a very lonely thing if you're struggling in this area because it's, there's shame and all the rest, and so you're not telling anybody. Uh, we want to create a safe place where you can speak about your issues and know you'll be loved and accepted, not labeled, demeaned, or disrespected in any way. So let me know if you want more information. Years ago, I did a series on homosexuality on Wednesday night, and I can't tell you how many people privately came to me just to say, I struggle in that area, and I would like help. So uh, if that's you, please let me know, and uh, we'd, we'd like to hook you up with some resources, get to know you a little bit. Anyway, uh, help yourself before you leave today to one of these things if you're, if you're interested. Okay. Well, there you have it. We are in 1 Samuel chapter 8, and we'll finish the chapter today. Brother Chuck started us uh, in the first part of the chapter, and since it's been a while since we've been there, let me just give you a little um, review of of what it was about. Uh, Samuel was a judge in ancient Israel. I mean, there was Eli the priest, then there was Samuel, and Samuel had two sons who became judges, and they were bad guys, really ungodly. So people were pretty disgusted with the priestly system, because remember, Eli had sons who were quite evil and unrestrained as well. So the people said, we're sick of the priestly system, and we're sick of the judge system, because Samuel's boys are no better. They said, give us a king system. And they use this terrible phrase, they say, like all the other nations. So here is God trying to make them distinguished and distinct, and they said, no, we want to blend in. We want a a form of government like all the other nations. Well, Samuel is pretty upset about all this, and he goes to God and talks to God about it, and God says, you know, let them have what they want. Wow, that's kind of a scary thing to hear. And God said to Samuel uh, in verse 7, he said, they've not rejected you, they've rejected me from being king over them. So this is pretty serious for crying out loud. God delivers them and allows them to enter into covenant and is leading them into the promised land. And they they reject their king, the divine king, uh, in place of a demand for a human king. So anyway, that's what's going on. And that brings us now to verse 10. Verse 10. So um, before, here's what God told Samuel. I, I should tell you this. He said, give them the king, but before you do, tell them what he's going to be like. Warn them about the procedures of the king, so maybe they'll come to their senses, and they'll, they won't reject me. So, th- okay, that's the context. Here we go, verse 10. So Samuel spoke all the words of the Lord to the people who had asked of him a king. And he said, this will be the procedure of the king who will reign over you. Do you happen to know what his name is going to be? Yes, Saul, first king of Israel. So this is what we're talking. So, so, so Samuel's going to explain to them what he'll be like, this procedure. He will take, see that word take? Hey, try to keep track of the number of times you see the word take in the next few verses. He, he will take your sons and place them for himself in his chariots and among his horsemen and they will run before his chariots. They'll be his bodyguards, his security team. You're in the army now. So one of the procedures of the king is that he's going to take your sons and put them in the army because that's what a monarchy does. Uh, That's what a centralized government does. A centralized government takes. I didn't say that's bad. I didn't say government is bad. I'm just telling you this is the character of government. It takes, in this case, through the draft. The government has the right to draft folks into the military. 
So God says, Samuel, just let the people know about this. This is going to be something that the king is going to do. The monarch will take your sons. And again, one way centralized government takes is through the draft. Now, verse 12, and he will appoint for himself commanders uh, of thousands and of fifties, and some to do his plowing and to reap his harvest and to make his weapons of war and even equipment for his chariots. He will also take, there's the second time you see that verb, he will also take, not sons, but in this case, daughters. He'll take your daughters, what'll they do? They'll be perfumers, cooks, and bakers. See, uh, a luxurious court requires subservient laborers. I mean, we see it even in our government. When there's, a, you know, like a state dinner, a dignitary, foreign dignitary comes to the White House, this protocol, it's quite, quite amazing to see all that goes into it, and, and, and we pay for it. Uh, so this is not saying human government is wrong, because government is God's idea. You know what this is saying? Uh, this is saying, Israel, your heart is not right. Because you think human government can do for you what I told you I'll do for you. That's what's wrong. Government is not wrong. We read in the Bible that it's God's agency to protect the citizenry and all the rest. So this is not an indictment on government. This is an indictment on Israel's undue expectation of government. Uh, They were looking for the government to deliver, protect, save and provide for them when God said he'll do that. And by the way, we're no different. Uh, Every election year, we have this unrealistic expectation of the man or woman who will be in the the White House. I don't care what political party. They're human, my heavens, thoroughly human. And uh, we get disappointed all the time because we have expectations of human government that go way beyond what what they ought to be. The human government is not the problem. It's our undue expectations of human government. Anyway, that's what Israel is doing. God, you know, thanks for the offer. It's been really good, but we don't even see you. We would like to have like a, like a leader we can see and, uh, and you know, depend upon him. Because, you know, depending on you is kind of rough. We got to do it by face, stuff like that. You know, we would rather have someone who's flesh and blood like us. But not only that, like all the other nations. We've got every nation has somebody, a body, you know, who they, I mean, you know, you're a spirit and you're out there somewhere and we, thanks a lot. Hey, don't be offended. Anyway, that's what's going on over here. So uh, verse 14, and he will take, here's the third time, he will take the best of your fields and your vineyards and your olive groves, and give them to his servants. What's up there? Well, political favors at the expense of the citizenry. The government is going to take through the draft, and the government is going to take through confiscation of your stuff. And it's going to give your stuff to others. These are political favors. These are the shenanigans of centralized government. And God is saying this seems to be the common procedure of all the kings of the world. So the government will take by the draft and government will take by confiscation. And there's more. Verse 15. And he will take, if you're counting, that's the fourth time you see that verb. You know, after a while, you get the notion that's sort of the theme here of this text, a king who takes. And so verse 15, he will take a tenth of your seed and of your vineyards and give to his officers and to his servants. Folks, uh, that is called taxation. And uh, perhaps you're familiar with it. So this is the third way the government can take. It can take through the draft. It's legal. It can take through confiscation of stuff. And it can and does take through taxation. By the way, we're in the midst of a tax reform proposal now, right? Yeah, don't hold your breath. You know, because another thing that government can't do is really get much done. Not the way it's constructed. Good ideas don't have a way of not getting through. (laughs) Gridlock. So, but taxation is a very legitimate thing. That's not government oppression. That's 
Let's just characterize government. Again, the theme here is taking. Government takes through the draft, through confiscation of goods, and through taxation. Now, in the last hour, I got really off track and because uh, someone made the mistake of asking me a question. I'm blaming it on that person. And uh, uh, he asked me, well, how were the priests and judges and all that, how were they supported? How were they sustained? And I told him through the tithe. Um, and he asked me more questions about it. So I got into a controversial area. And uh, just to show you I haven't learned my lesson, I will repeat it here. Because <clears throat> if I'm going to go down as a result of what I said in the first hour, why not do it this time too? Um, so let me just tell you, make this blatant statement. I do not believe in the tithe. Okay, have a nice day. See you later. I don't believe it's for today. Now, that's an extremely controversial thing to say in a Baptist church. But don't hate me. Prove me wrong from Scripture. Do not tell me I never heard this. That's not the way I was raised. I have traditions that go way beyond yours as a Jew. I decided at one time I would rather have truth as over against tradition. What about you? There are Baptist traditions too that to me don't stand up against biblical scriptural scrutiny. I'm not indicting Baptist. I are one. And therefore, I have a right to say these things. I'm not an outsider taking pot shots. I'm an insider. I am an ordained Southern Baptist minister. And I'm honored to be one. I'm not looking for a better deal. I don't want another faith group. I want, to, I want to finish the course as a Southern Baptist. I'm not ashamed to be a Southern Baptist. We have the best missions, the best seminaries, the best churches, the best preachers. I'm, I'm thrilled that God led me into this. So don't misunderstand. I'm just telling you, uh, we have some practices that are, I don't think stand the test of Scripture. Like tithes and offerings. I'll tell you what I mean. In the Old Testament, there was the tithe. It's part of the law of Moses. I dare you to show me in the New Testament where the tithe is repeated. I dare you. Except in a kind of negative sense. When God indicts the Jewish religious leaders for tithing and yet violating the fundamental moral and ethical foundation of the law. I dare you to show me tithing as an ordained mandated principle or standard of giving in the New Testament. No. The law of Moses has been fulfilled in Christ Jesus. So therefore, what is the New Testament standard of giving? It's not a percentage. Here is what it is. Twofold. Give as God has enabled you. Give as an emanation of a hilarious and joyous and loving heart. That's the New Testament principle. Two things, as God enables you and as an act of love for Almighty God. Give joyously. I dare you to show me I'm wrong about that. I dare you. If you succeed, uh, then next week I'll stand. Oh, no, it's Brother Chuck next week. When I get back, uh, I'll apologize. I'll say I'm wrong. I'm not just spouting off at the mouth. I know what we as Baptists historically believe, but I also know what the Scriptures say. And one of the things we Baptists do is put ourselves under the authority of Scripture, not Baptist tradition. I dare you to show me uh, any different principle of New Testament giving other than as God enables you to give and be a joyous and hilarious giver. Do it, not by legal constraints, but out of love for Almighty God. Now, I'll tell you why the tithe doesn't... Um, isn't to be repeated by us today. God wants us to love him through giving and worship him. He surely doesn't need our money. We're not paying our dues. We're showing our love for God. Well, if you're a married person and your wife, your wife has a birthday, she typically does year after year, if you give her the same gift year after year, how's that going to go over? You know what she, even if it's expensive, she doesn't like it. You know what she wants? She wants to know you took time to think about 
what would be really pleasing to her. But that's how God wants to be romanced. He doesn't want some automatic, mechanical percentage, some mindless percentage. He wants you to evaluate, oh God, how can I love you? How can I worship you? How can I trust you? And that's going to change from time to time in accordance with how God has enabled you to give. You might have a period of unemployment. You might have a period of prosperity. There are times you ought to be giving much more than 10%. There are times when you're not able to give 10%. By the way, if you think you're a biblical tither, it's not 10%. There are three tithes under the law of Moses. See, this is what bugs me. Baptists are picking and choosing aspects of the Mosaic law that fund their buildings. But what about the rest of the law? Like eating kosher food. (laughs) Get rid of your Jimmy Dean sausage and your honey-baked ham. If you want to be under the law of Moses for crying out loud, let's just take the whole load. Let's not just pick the tithe kind of a thing because that's what will take care of your budget. So if you really want to be a biblical tither... If you say, no, the tithe is for today, okay, cool. Three tithes in the Old Testament. You know what they total? Approximately 25% of your income. If you're a a 10% giver, you're not a biblical tither. (laughs) That's less than half of what's required. Where did the tithe in in the Old Testament go? It went to support the government, the temple, the priesthood, the sacrificial system army was all paid for by the tithe when you paid your three tithes god did not pat you on the back and say hey thanks it was required it was mandated so we read in the bible the expression tithes and offerings the tithe was required the offering was free will in fact we call it that a free will offering it's above and beyond the required tithe it's you love God and you want, to, you want to express it in giving, so that's the offering. What's the New Testament equivalent of tithes and offerings? Or today, what's the modern-day equivalent? Tax and offerings. When you pay your taxes, interestingly, most here are in a 25% tax bracket. That is to say, unless they come up with a flat tax and all the rest, and don't hold your breath. But anyway... Most interestingly are in a 25% tax bracket. Now, when you pay your taxes as an American citizen, I doubt at the end of the year the IRS sends you a thank you note. On the contrary, if you don't come through, you're going to get locked up. It's mandated. It has nothing to do with love and devotion. It's required by law. Tax and offering. So we pay our taxes to support the government. It's very, very legitimate. The military, the structure, the politicians, all the rest. This is very legitimate. But then we give offerings to kingdom causes above and beyond taxes. It's not tithes and offering. It's tax and offering. But how much do we give above and beyond? The New Testament principle, I remind you again. Number one, as God enables. And two, out of a loving, joyous Not obligated, burdened heart, joyous heart. Now, I'll tell you why I think it's important for us to get this fixed. I know many people who are giving nothing to kingdom causes here at this church. Many. Why? Are they bad people? No, not necessarily. Many of them think, I have to give 10%. I'm unable to. Therefore, they give nothing. They think it's either 10% or nothing. That's crazy. It's not a percentage requirement at all. It's as God enables. He doesn't need money. He wants to give you an opportunity to worship him and express thanksgiving for the way he has provided for us. So it may be a dollar and not $10. It may be something. And it has to be regular, regular, because God desires to be worshipped and romanced regularly. It's not the amount. It's the discipline. It's the practice of it. So I know many people who go for long periods of time without giving anything because they can't give 10%. 
It's bondage. The law of Moses is bondage. And then there are some who ought to be giving way more than 10% because the biblical principle is as God enables. So if you're locked into the 10% thing, <laughs> you're not giving out of a, uh, it's not a free will offering. That's a mechanical robot-like. That's like giving your spouse the same gift year after year. It's mindless and it's thoughtless. So I thought this at a church I pastored in Baton Rouge, and uh, one of the people told me, you're going to lead us into bankruptcy. Nobody's going to give. Well, we had a $4.5 million budget. Not only did we meet it in my time there, we exceeded it all the time. People were motivated by love and devotion to Almighty God, not by a rigid percentage one way or the other. Folks, we have moved from law to grace, except when it comes to giving, because Baptists have a way of manipulating people to give. Excuse me for being so caustic, but that's what happens when you get old. You, you feel like, I got nothing to prove. Who cares? I'm telling you, folks, this is a biblical deal. Now, look, if I got this wrong, I want to hear from you. But don't come to me and say, well, that's not the way I was raised. You want to talk about tradition. I mean, we just finished the high holy days, Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, and y'all didn't do a thing about it here at <laughs> Sagemont Baptist Church. And I'm fine with that. I'd rather be a, a Baptist in the body of Christ than, than all that other stuff which, that I was raised with. So, so what do you want? Do you want truth or tradition? Now, if, uh, if I'm wrong about this and this is not biblical truth, then you need to tell me. But I've been sharing this for years and I've not had one intelligent person prove me wrong. <clears throat> I've had cantankerous people. My daddy, my daddy. Yeah, well, my daddy was, you know, I can talk to you about it. I come from a line of rabbis. You want to talk about tradition? Come on. Here. You know, uh, I'd rather have biblical truth than tradition. Hey, you Jews need to. What about you Baptists? A lot of hanging on stuff that, uh, hey, man, that's the law of Moses. The Lord Jesus fulfilled it for crying out loud. We're in an entirely different relationship with Almighty God right now. So anyway, there you have it. So government is not the evil, and supporting it is not the evil. But God wants these people to know, good night. You would rather look to government to provide for you the things I want to provide? By the way, government, by definition, not only will not provide, it's a taker. It'll take through the draft. It'll take through confiscation of property, and it'll take through taxation. So that's kind of what's going on. And it gets worse. Verse 16, he, the king they demand, will also take, this is the fifth time it says that, will take your male servants, your female servants, and your best young men and your donkeys and use them for his work. He will take, verse 17, that's the sixth time, he will take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his servants. Verse 18, then you will cry out. In that day, because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. Whoa. In the prior chapter, chapter 7, we read, And Samuel cried to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered. There's the pattern, a cry for help and an answer. Here, Israel is being warned, there'll be a cry for help, but no answer. You will cry out, but the Lord will not answer. Why? Is he just through with Israel? No. He loves Israel. So he decided to let Israel live with the consequences of her own demands. If we really love our kids and grandkids, that's how we'll respond to them. It, it, God is not punishing Israel God is letting Israel experience the natural consequences of her sinful demands. Why? As a deterrent from doing it again. Tough love, you might say. So that's kind of what's, what's going on over here. So verse 19, how did Israel respond? She's been warned about the consequences. How did she respond? Verse 19, nevertheless, the people refused to listen to the voice of Samuel. Folks, what is wrong with us? 
Now, you could say, what is wrong with those Jews, if you want to do that. But really, <laughs> we Jews, aside from the fact that we're generally better looking than most others, <laughs> are like everybody else. The reason God chose the Jews is that they're simply a mirror of, the, of all humans. <laughs> the way Israel was is a reflection of the rest of us. For instance, Israel had a problem. This is it. She had a passion for substitutes. Thank you, God, but we'd rather have. Well, don't you have a passion for substitutes? Thank you, God, but I'd rather have. Fill in the blank. No different. Here's nothing about Israel. Israel allowed Satan um, to minimize the consequences of her sinful choices and to maximize the uh, proposed benefits. Well, isn't that what gets you and I into sin too? Let's not point the finger at the Jews for crying out loud. They're just a mirror. We allow Satan to minimize the consequences of making choices outside of God's will. It won't be so bad. And to maximize the pleasure and benefits we derive from it. And we find out too late, oh, man, he lied again. So how, how's Israel different than anybody else? Same thing. So Israel insists on a substitute. Nevertheless, the people refuse to listen. No, there shall be a king over us. Now she's not asking. Now she's demanding in verse 20 that we may also be, here's that haunting phrase again, like all the nations, that our king may judge us. I thought God was going to do that. And go out before us. I thought God did that. And fight our battles. I thought God did that. They say, no, we'd rather have a king to do that. So here's the two things about Israel's nature that's the same as ours. One, a passion for substitutes. And two, a reluctance to be different. No, I don't want to be different. I want to be like all the other nations. Well, how, how, how's Israel different than you? Christians are exactly the same way. What do I mean? We want to fit in. We don't want to be distinct. God said, I want you to be distinct. I want you to be holy as I am holy. And we say, oh, thanks, God. But if I do that, I'll be like an oddball. I want to blend. So we dress like everybody else. We, go to, we watch the same movies as everybody else. We drink the same beverages as everybody else. So on. We have so succeeded in fitting in that people have out there, they have not rejected our Jesus. They've rejected us. Because this Jesus we identify with doesn't look like he made much of a difference in us. Why should they be attracted to him? She said, we're just like ancient Israel. You point the finger at those Jews. Those Jews is yous. Same thing. You want to fit in too. We are indistinguishable largely from the culture out there. It's fascinating to me. Young Christian couples see nothing wrong with living together. Christian people think they still have an option to divorce, just like folks out there do. Increasing numbers of Christians think that social drinking is fine, and people who don't do that are just legalistic creepos. <clears throat> Increasing number of Christians are having no trouble with same-sex marriage. Did you know that? We just look like everybody else. How's Israel different? They're not. God chose them to show us through them. Israel had a passion for substitutes. So do we. And Israel had a reluctance to fit in, a reluctance to be different. So do we. When all along, one of the privileges of being called by the Lord Jesus is that we would have his mindset, meaning we would not be in favor of abortion, because he's not. Meaning we would not authorize same-gender marriage, because that's not marriage. Meaning that we would handle our finances differently. Instead of accumulating and all the rest, we would trust God and give uh, a portion of it back as an act of love, devotion, and trust, we would live differently. We won't go to certain movies. <laughs> we won't wear certain items of apparel that show way too much. We'll be, we'll be a distinct and holy... We don't have to be oddballs. 
But God called us to be different. But like Israel, we don't want to. So anyway, Israel says, no way. We want a king. And here's the sole reason they want to. Because all the other nations got one. That's, that, that, that's just, so they would rather believe in uh, uh, or blend in. And now verse 21. So now after Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the Lord's hearing. Samuel, a poor guy, was really distressed by this. And so he had a quick run to God and inform God because God apparently didn't know this. But no, that's not why. God didn't need to be filled in. Samuel needed to get it out. By the way, that's one of the reasons we have the privilege of prayer. You don't have to fill God in, but you've got to get certain stuff out or you'll explode. That's the privilege of prayer. So verse 22, and the Lord said to Samuel, here we go again, listen to their voice and appoint them a king. That's the third time it says something like that in this chapter. Listen to their voice. Listen to their voice. So I want to tell you something. What God is about to allow them to have is not his perfect will. It's just what he permitted. It is not his perfect will for them to have Saul at this time. No, no, no. It's his permissive will. Folks, I got to tell you something. We don't want God to just permit stuff. We want his perfect will. What do you mean permit stuff? So here's a scary deal. I think there's a biblical basis for saying this. In your heart, if you keep demanding things from God, he'll give it to you. Be careful what you're demanding. Because ultimately God will say, I love you. Therefore, I'm going to let you have what your heart demands so that you can see you don't need it. You need me. There was a time in the wilderness wanderings when Israel got tired of what God was providing. You know, all this manna. Good night. All we get is manna. Want some meat. So we read this about that. Psalm 106, verse 15. So he gave them their request, but sent a wasting disease among them. Did God punish them? Nope, didn't have to. <laughs> he just let them live with the consequences of what they desired. Folks, be careful. I was with a young gal the other day, and uh, she, uh, she's living with a guy, and uh, it's not really working out. So she came to get some counsel about that. She's a Christian. He's not. They're living together. It's wrong. She knows it's wrong. When we began to talk about the wrongness of it, she got frustrated and angry. I think with herself, not with me. She said, don't I have a right to be happy? What would be your answer? No. <laughs> you don't have a right to be happy. You have the privilege of knowing that Father knows best. Father knows what's best for her, but her heart demanded this relationship. She would not listen to reason, and so Father uh, permitted this. It's not his perfect will. He permitted this. Why? To punish her? Oh, no. So that she would see, ah, oh, I have a passion for substitutes. And in my mind, I've persu been persuaded of the benefits. I've overemphasized the benefits of this relationship and de-emphasized the consequences. And now look what I'm left with, the consequences of it all. She was miserable. God was not making her miserable. He loves her. God was trying to show her, please, even though I'm unseen, even though I'm invisible, Please don't choose a visible substitute for me. Haven't I proved to you I know best and your interests are important to me? So this happens, this kind of happens all the time. And so here's what happens, verse 22. The Lord uh, said to Samuel, listen to their voice and appoint them a king. And so Samuel said to the men of Israel, go, everyone to his city. So here's what's going to happen. It's very interesting. Uh, they're told to go home until God provides for them the king they demand. And here's the irony of it all. They are rejecting God, but they can't escape the sovereignty of God. They can't even get their substitute king unless Almighty God provides him. Can you see how ridiculous we are? 
we, not just these folks in the text. See how nutso we are? They're running from Almighty God with whom they have to make do, even for the provision of the God substitute, King Saul, they demand. So while they go to their house, God is going to prepare Saul to emerge as their first, as their first king. So uh, he proves, he gets off to a good start, as we'll see in 1 Samuel, and then he proves to be exactly as God warned them uh, he, would, he, he would be. Folks, every king, every human government, by definition, takes. There's only one king <laughs> whose kingship is characterized by giving rather than taking. What do you think his name is? King Jesus. Listen, one of my favorite verses tell us about this. Mark ten forty five. For even the Son of Man, that's Jesus, did not come to be served. Man, that surprised me when I read it. I thought, oh, no, Lord, we're your bondservants. We're supposed to serve. Yeah, but he didn't primarily come that we would serve him. That's what the text says. Even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. How? And to give his life as a ransom for many. The only king whose reign is primarily, primarily characterized by giving, not taking, is King Jesus. And yet we have a passion to substitute someone for him. We're in trouble. Something wrong with us. Human nature. It's not Jewish human nature. It's, it's human nature. Passion for substitutes. So I want to close with this. Let's say you're like that young girl I told you about. In your heart, you demanded something. You essentially said to God, God, I want this. And if you don't give it to me, I'll get it one way or the other. Have you said something like that? If you have, and you're in the situation like that young gal, and you're realizing, you know, what did I do? I'm miserable, and so on. Is there hope for you? Or is it over between you and God? Well, let me tell you, no, no, it's never over. And yes, there is hope. And, and here's how I, I want to substantiate that point. Um, uh, Brother Chuck and I went through here in the class the book of Deuteronomy one time. We, as a class, we went through Deuteronomy. I forgot when. We went through it before 1 Samuel. And that makes sense because Deuteronomy chronologically takes place before 1 Samuel. That's important. I just want to read to you one verse from Deuteronomy. It's chapter 17, verse 14. Listen. When you enter the land, God speaking to Israel, when you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you and you possess it and live in it and you say, I will set a king over me like all the nations who are around me. Are you kidding me? That's exactly what they did. These are the very words. God anticipated, God knew in advance, this is what his chosen people would do. He says, not if you do this, when you do this. God saw it coming. Don't you think, therefore, God would have been justified to wipe out Israel at that point? God could have said, I know all things. I see the end from the beginning. I know what you're going to do. You're going to reject me in place of a king. Therefore, we're done. It's over. But he doesn't. He brings people successfully through her wilderness wanderings. He enables his people to enter into this place of promise. He gives them the capacity to uproot and conquer those who are in the land, the Canaanites, and take possession of their land. He fulfills all his promises. He saved, delivered, redeemed uh, sinful Israel and brought them into a place of promise, even though he knew in advance this is how she would respond to him. What about you? If you're a Christian, you've been saved, delivered, redeemed, and God promised you a place of promise too. We call it heaven. But maybe you pulled a fast one like Israel, and you essentially said to Almighty God, thanks but no thanks, and out of a passion for substitutes, you removed God from the formula of your life, did your own thing, and you're messed up now because of it. Is it over? It's not over with Israel. It's not over with you. God saw it coming. When he saved you, 
He saved you from the sins you didn't even commit yet. When Jesus uh, procured forgiveness for our sins 2,000 years ago, it was in advance of every sin he saw coming. Could I make this statement? God is not disappointed with you at your worst. Why not? He saw it coming. We only get disappointed with one another when we let down one another. You know, we had a higher expectation, and it wasn't met. Well, you really disappointed me. But that never happens with God because he didn't have an unrealistic expectation of us. He knew we'd be just like Israel. When you get to the land and you demand a king like all the other nations, he saw it all coming, and he still said, I love you, I forgive you, I'll never leave you or forsake you. That's why Israel's in the Bible, because as God is with Israel, he is with us. As Israel is with God, we are with God. Don't be pointing the fingers at Israel. It's you. It's me. It's human nature and divine nature. It hasn't changed. So if you're someone who's gone astray, you're a Christian. You better. You, you know, uh, uh, and, and you're redeemed, but you know better. Here's what you need to do. Confess and repent. Don't make those big, fancy religious things. Confess simply means to agree. Oh, God, I agree. I got it. I demanded stuff outside of your will, and you lovingly gave it to me so I could see what a knucklehead I am. I confess I've sinned. That's what confession is. You don't make excuses. You don't say, well, it's because my mama never breastfed me. You know what I'm saying? You don't do, I got the gene of rebellion in me, whatever. The th- you don't play. You say, God, I did it because I chose to do it. I confess it. I'm a sinner. But then you repent. Don't make repentance more than it. Repentance means you change your direction. doesn't mean you change you. You can't change you. You are so locked in sin, you can't change you. It means you change direction. It means you, you look at Jesus and you say to him, Oh, God, thank you for forgiving me. You don't beg for forgiveness. Why are you begging for something he already gave? You say, Oh, God, thank you for forgiveness. I need help. I'm coming back to you. My heart's not right. I'm demanding things that are just stupid and bad. Oh, God, I need you to... I need your mind in me. Change, change my heart. Thank you for forgiving me, for redeeming me. Thank you one day for bringing me forth holy and blameless and beyond reproach. That's the promise of the Bible. You say, oh, God, I, I, I'm a long way from that. And you say, God, get your money's worth out of me, please. God, you redeemed me. You bought me with a price. Please get glory out of me. You say, oh, God, I've drifted, but now I'm, I'm back. I want to follow Jesus. That's repentance. And you know what he says? That's it. You have blown me off one too many times. No. He says, welcome back. He said, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you a boot in the behind. He says, I'll give you rest. So how could this be? Grace greater than all our sin. That's how it is. As God was with Israel. By the way, Israel's in the land today since 1948. So I know God kept his word in spite of Israel. As God is with Israel, so he will be with us. You accept Jesus, King of Kings. He's your personal Savior, and he will complete the work he began in you, even in spite of you. Well, if he's going to complete it, why don't I just do what I want to do? Man, it'll be a bumpy ride. Another thing to learn from Israel, 40 years of bumps in the wilderness, they could have made it in 11 days. I'm going to arrive at my destination, so will you, heaven. But I don't want to go bruised and beaten up and all the stuff. I want to go direct route, don't you? (laughs) So even though we know the outcome, victory in Jesus, still we want to make the process as blessed and enjoyable as possible. Don't be like Israel going in circles for 40 years. Don't be doing that. Okay, well, there you have it, folks. We finished. Yeah, go ahead, Ryan. uh, Oh, man, I love Ryan's question. That guy thinks. Ryan's question, I'll repeat it to you. How is not doing things God's way, how is that? not blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And so that's a big issue that requires a lot of time. But really, it's the same, isn't it? It's demeaning God's Spirit in us. It's ignoring 
his uh, guidance and his conviction of sin and all the rest. It's devaluing God's presence in us, which would be kind of like blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Oh, I see what you're saying. Okay, in that case, it's not the same. <laughs> see, that guy is unbelievable. You snookered me. Okay, so, so when the Bible talks about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, it is to attribute to God's Spirit the qualities of the demonic. That's unpardonable. This is different. This is flat-out plain disobedience by a believer. A believer is not calling the Holy Spirit the unholy spirit. See, that's what the Jews in the day did. They attributed to the work of God's spirit. They said, you do this by Beelzebul. That's Satan. See, that's a, that's a great question. Ryan, don't be asking those questions anymore. <laughs> Folks, let's pray. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for uh, investing in our lives. Plenty of flaws defects, flat-out sin. Thank you for persisting with us that we be unfaithful. The Bible says you remain faithful. Israel is evidence of it, and we think you're the same towards us. And thank you, Father, that your ways are best. Father knows best. I wish you would enable us to trust you more, and though we don't see you, to follow you, to wait on you, to provide for all of our needs, emotional and otherwise. Please curb our appetite for substitutes and keep us from falling prey to the liar, the deceiver of the brethren, who minimizes the consequence of sin, overemphasizes its benefits, and then we find out, oh my goodness, we've been duped. Your will is good, acceptable, and perfect. Help us to get it and to walk in it. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you folks. Hope to see you next time.